Let's open in a word of prayer if we can. Father God, we just commit this morning to you. We commit our hearts to you, we commit our, mind, our lives to you, our relationships, our decisions, our time, our energy, the dreams for our future, our hopes for our kids, the fears that just nag at us, the insecurities that run so deep. We just commit it all to you, knowing that striving after the solutions ourselves will, will only be vanity. And so we're hungry this morning. We're hungry for you. We're hungry for encouragement. We're hungry for your love, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when we went into January, we were supposed to talk about Antioch's four commitments. We got off to a great start. We talked about Christ-centered, which is kind of our first commitment. And then the, the next week, we were supposed to talk about authentic spirituality, and um, we got off track, made up a sermon, whatever, went a different direction. And then, and then last week, we were supposed to talk about intentional community. And the whole idea is, um, I was told, and it make, makes a lot of sense, we need, we need four straightforward sermons on our four commitments so that we know what they are and, and we can kind of have the videos and new people that come to the church, we can give them the videos and it's here it is, you know. And So the second week got completely butchered. So then last week we were supposed to get back on track, talk about intentional community. And somehow I said that, you know, community fairs suck and I had to apologize all week for it with, with staff. Um, and then this week... I was supposed to talk about missional living, and we're not going to do that. Um, and I'm sorry for always messing up Antioch. I really am. I, I don't mean to. Um, but here's what I've kind of realized, and it's not going to make uh, four good sermons to give to new people, and, and so I don't know what to do about that, so we'll just set it aside. But the first commitment really is at the core, and I think that's why I keep getting off track. It's... It's the, this deep-seated, guttural realization that God is at the center, that Christ is at the center, that all the other stuff really flows out of that. It's, it's that realization that I think keeps messing up everything else. Because every time I, I turn to talk about something like community or how we live our life you know, and, and it needs to be authentic and not legalistic or weird or, or hypocritical. Every time I go to talk about something out here, what I really end up feeling is, is what we should be talking about is God because that's what drives it all. Does that make sense? There's, a, there's a, an amazing, you know, God, God doesn't, he's not capricious, you know, willy-nilly. And so you see this amazing imagery with Moses in the Old Testament and, and our lives parallel the lives of the nation of Israel. But you see this story where there's these snakes that come upon them. They come on, you know, this, this part of the desert where there's all these snakes and people are dying. And, and God says, I'll save you. I'll deliver you. And, 
And Moses, you know, there's this kind of snake on a, on a stick, you know, and they kind of hold it up. And the idea is, look at that and you'll be saved. Take your eyes off that and, and all of a sudden, you know, things are going wrong. And Jesus is with his disciples and, and he calls Peter out of the boat and he's trying to, to kind of teach Peter the, the doctoral level lessons. I mean, this is not freshman English anymore. I mean, Peter's out on the water. And the lesson is the same. It's, it's keep your eyes fixed on me. And the minute you look at the troubles or the, the problems around you, it all begins to go haywire. And then the great irony is then Jesus gets lifted up on a, a stick, on a, a cross. And the idea is that's where you're going to look for your salvation. You look to Jesus, whom God provided for the forgiveness of your sins, that you may be saved. And then we get to Hebrews, and Hebrews is written in this unbelievable context where for the first time, people kind of are able, you know, you're able to believe in secret what you want to believe in secret, and, and you, you have anonymity, and people just kind of leave you alone. And, and then as the Christian sect begins to grow, all of a sudden, there's, there's no anonymity anymore, and there, it begins to be in the spotlight. People are watching, and they care about what you believe. And if you believe this new kind of way, this, this Jesus thing, they're going to make your life more difficult. It's not just something you can have private. And, and people are struggling with persecution, with going, why, why, would, my, why would people attack me for my, my belief in Jesus. And, and so they're like, oh my gosh, should I kind of shy away from this? What should I do? And the writer of Hebrews talks about all the people all throughout the history of the world who have been persecuted or endured hardship because of their belief in God. And then this fascinating, why don't you just turn there? Get your, if you have your Bibles, get them out. You're, we're going we're gonna to make them smoke today. So in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we, we get the, the writer in the book of Hebrews, he spent the whole book exalting Christ and saying it starts here. There's nothing better to put your eyes on. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more desirable. There's nothing more meaningful. It starts here. And then in chapter 11, there's that encouragement of like, this guy, he got killed. This guy got sold in two. Like these guys, man... There is an amazing history of people who lived by faith. You're not alone, and not only that, but you have not yet shed blood for your belief. Your life has been made difficult, you're teased, but you've not yet shed blood. And then in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says this, Therefore, Chapter 12 of Hebrews. I'm going to read in the NIV today because it's more comfortable for me, and we're going to a bunch of passages, so I grabbed it this morning. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so we have this encouragement, we have this kind of fellowship, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus chose what was difficult because it was the right thing. And the right thing is always where joy ultimately is going to be found. And so Paul is saying this Jesus who endured the cross because of the joy set before him, we're going to fix our eyes on that. So just like the Israelites in the desert, just like Peter walking on water, we are going to fix our eyes on the right thing even though there's all this difficult stuff around us, because when we do the right thing, ultimately that's where joy is going to be found. There's nothing better. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more significant. There's nothing else that's going to ultimately work other than fixing our eyes on Jesus and putting him at the center. And so when we're talking about authentic spirituality, meaning religion's not just a game and we're duplicitous and hypocritical or rule-bound or judgmental or just plain weird. If, if it's just real because we've been marked and shaped by grace, it's because we're looking at God and, and it keeps us honest. It's, <laughs> that's, that's where it comes from. That's that's the right thing, and ultimately that's where my joy comes from. And that sets me free. Sets me free to love you. Sets me free to be gracious with you, no matter how messy your marriage is, no matter how storied your past is, no matter how weak and feeble you are. It allows me to have grace for you. I don't have to point out your flaws. I don't have to be your savior. I just have to love you and keep showing you that your savior is going to be the same as my savior. That's, that's where it's at. And then community. We, we do have this commitment. It's called intentional community. I met a guy who's uh, been going to Antioch for a year. I met him at a wedding yesterday. And, it, and this is the first time I've ever heard this in five years of Antioch. I always hear, uh, we loved Antioch, but we had to leave because we couldn't get connected. Heard that for five years. Yesterday was the first time I heard, we went to a whole bunch of other churches, we loved them, but we couldn't get connected, and we came to Antioch and got connected. And I was just like, you sure you're talking about Antioch? <laughs> this is the hardest church in the world to get connected. We, we've never really done a good job. We try, we care, but we don't do a great job. And so I got really excited and, and thought, man, <laughs> intentional community. There is a value to the, the community fairs and the small groups and the marriage small groups and the women's groups and the men's groups and actually taking the, effort, the time and the effort to sign up and pursue landing in a room with a dozen other people or 20 other people. We had the Sunday morning thing start with Rick Gerhardt this morning, and he was saying he had over 20 people. The, the basics of the Christian faith, the doctrinal kind of essentials. And I loved it. You know why I loved it? You know, because my, my, it's not that I love that too, that people are going to learn about the essentials of the faith. But what I really thought of was on the heels of that conversation yesterday, those are 20 people that are going to get connected at Antioch. Um, I love 
the sense of community. However, looking at community like anything, it can become an idol. If we stare at it too long, we make it bigger than it's supposed to be, and, and then it's not fitting into the whole puzzle the way it's supposed to fit into it. If you stare at anything too long, you, you take it and, and expand it out of proportion. I've been learning this at Antioch. In leadership, it's an interesting thing. You got, you got the whole context of, say, Antioch and, and where we've been and where we're going, just the big level stuff. And then you've got, like, staff, which is huge. You know, what does the staff look like? Who's on staff? What's the org chart looks like? You know, looks like. Um, and then you have, should we have chocolate bagels or regular bagels? Now, if you know anything about my personality, I care just as much about that question as I do about who's on staff at Antioch. Uh, there's a right answer to every question, you know? And there's a, there's a better bagel and a lesser bagel. And I can make the mistake of dwelling here because it matters. But if I dwell here too long, to the exclusion of all that other stuff, I make something small appear disproportionately large in the grand scheme of things. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Intentional community, the fact that we're like a community, that's a huge deal. But every huge deal can become an idol. And the idea is, when I start talking about here, I'm just like, man... I don't, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself to give you what you need for real community. I don't. I'm going to let you down. Uh, we got great elders. We got great staff. As great as they are, I don't trust them to perfectly provide for you what you need for perfect community. And so I look at this and I immediately want to say, you know, this isn't the salvation um, dwelling on Christ is the salvation. Keeping God in the center is the salvation. Staying humble, staying supple and just gracious. And then all my flaws, hopefully, I'll be uh, teachable enough to kind of help work out with you. Um, I can say I'm sorry. And hopefully, if you're looking at Christ too, and if God's in the center, as you see my flaws and, and you begin to realize that I'm not all I'm cracked up to be, maybe there's enough grace there for you as well to forgive or to accept. And that in all of that grace, it's the glue to true community. And so I, I think the hard thing here I, I have is I just can't, I, I can't make Antioch enough of a business to do good business stuff. As much as I, I'm supposed to, I can't give the four sermons to give to visitors that have these great, about, I, just, I just can't. Um, but I can get really excited about God. We have a 20-something group that meets at our house, Tamara and I do. We were bored. We have a lot of extra time. Nothing, nothing going on, so we thought, why not have 30, 20-somethings in our house stay till midnight on Sunday nights? 
actually, um, I was a college pastor for a decade. I love, 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 love the raw, vibrant faith of college students and, and 20-year-olds. Um, they're too immature to know all the stupid ways of pretending to have faith. I love that. If they don't like something, they tell you. If they don't like you, they tell you. If they hate you, they tell you. But what's fun about having this group on Sunday nights, and if, I mean, and they're here, by the way, and I love you guys. Um, and I tell this group, I've told them half a dozen times, my goal for this group is I want to hand Antioch to you. You have the time, you have the passion, and you have the idealism to take this church where it needs to go. And so I keep saying, like, you know, Jesus' disciples, it's, it's one of these hidden things in the movies. They're always these, these bearded, like, 30-year-old guys, you know, Jesus' disciples in the movies. In real life, it was like a junior high group. There's a couple of them that might have been more like high school age, maybe one or two, uh, possibly Peter, that were like, you know, late teens, early 20s. But the reality is it was like a youth group. Um, and Jesus handed the church to them, you know. So this 20-something group in my house, I keep saying, I want to hand Antioch to you guys. I don't want to keep it from you. I don't want to talk down to you. I want to, I want to, I want to hand it to you. Um, but so we had a, a time last week, and I love what a home affords in terms of intimacy and the opportunity to really experience kind of the relational dynamic of worship and community. And it was incredibly rich to me last week, and so I wanted to dive into a little bit of what we talked about as the 20-something group last Sunday. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. And what I feel in my gut, I think there's no better passage maybe for me right now to, that expresses this than, than chapter 2 of Jeremiah. It's so cogent. It's so powerfully clear. So listen to what it says. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're just going to read a big old chunk of it. It says this, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem to the prophet Jeremiah. And then in quotes, this is God talking, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy, set apart to the Lord the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were guilty, and disaster overtook them. She was special to me, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? What did I do to cause this? They followed worthless idols, and therefore they became worthless themselves. We become what we worship. Emerson said that. 
not the greatest Christian, but he said what was obvious. We become what we worship. What we idealize affects and change and transforms us. And God says they followed worthless idols and they therefore became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness to a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I did. I brought you out into a fertile land to eat its fruit and its rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and became my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and uh, following worthless idols. And therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Now, hold on to your seats or grab the person next to you. This is the, the blowback, like Memorex moment of Scripture right here. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Has a nation ever changed its gods, ever had a God who protected and took care of and nurtured its people? And has a nation like that ever then changed its gods? It's illogical. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens. And shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. I mean, I, <clears throat> there's not too many times when I would say, be appalled, O the heavens. <laughs> like, um, you football players, be appalled at the way you're playing. It's objectionable. You should be ashamed in front of your coaches that are watching or something like that. Or uh, you math students, you should be appalled at the kind of performance that you're giving. You musicians should be appalled. Be appalled with the heavens is like this charge of blasphemy that, that reverberates to the edges of the universe. That this, the illogic here. Do you know why you get angry when someone cuts you off on the road? know why? Because it's illogical and therefore offensive. What's your response? The bird, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, you, it's illogical and therefore you get offended. God is saying that the, the logic here that's being broken is so front and center and simple that it's like splitting an atom. We're at the core of everything here. And it, yes, it is so small, but the, the illogic of splitting that atom, of doing this thing, of breaking logic, capital L logic, is so huge and the response is, is such offense 
that the offense here carries and reverberates all the way across the universe, what you're doing here. My people, this is, this is our passage for this morning. If there is a passage for this morning, this is, this is it. My people have committed two sins, two violations, two breaches of what is right. Number one, they have forsaken, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug, number two, they have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And then it goes on. Is Israel's servant, a slave by birth, was a born into servitude? Well, then why has it become plunder? Lines have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Verse 17, have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shehor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your, your wickedness will punish you. Your, your backsliding will rebuke you. So therefore consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God, and have no awe of me, no fear of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This was the insight with the 20-something group. We mistakenly think, this is my contention, that to forsake God, to turn our backs on God, to rebel against God, if we were doing it, would look like this. That God is here, we spit in God's face, and we turn from God. We forsake Him, we do evil to Him, we reject and rebel Him, and we go this way. How many of you have consciously chosen to spit in God's face? Maybe, maybe a handful of you. Maybe a handful. I don't think most of us have ever stared God in the face, said, I hate you, and, and, and literally, symbolically spit in his face. Here's the great irony about rebelling against God. It usually is a slow and subtle move that begins by being distracted or allured by something else that begins to promise what you think you don't have or can't have with, with God. And as you're distracted by what begins to promise what you want, life and happiness and, and joy, you slowly begin in your distraction to go this way. And over time, it looks a lot like this. You have forsaken me, the true source of life, living water, by pursuing cisterns, methods, manners, and ways to get at what I promised you that you think you can get better 
another way. Let me show you what a cistern looks like. Uh, this one's from the time of David. Mike Saba sent these to me at 9 a.m. Um, a cistern is not a well. It's not a well. A well has permeable walls, and the idea is that the, the groundwater seeps up into that well, and then you can drop a bucket and retrieve it, and it, and it kind of feeds itself that way. A cistern is a, a receptacle that's supposed to be sealed, and it captures rainwater when, you know, here in the ancient Near East, uh, or if you go to Haiti, or if you go to Africa, cisterns are a huge way that third world countries now, where there's not clean water uh, or an abundance of water, how they capture and hold on to water. Usually now it's these plastic things that they'll put on the top of their house or, or elsewhere where the water runs in with just a small opening to try and keep it as clean as possible. But the idea is that it's sealed. So in, in, in this, like the time of David, you would try to plaster the walls so that it was like a, a concrete or some kind of a watertight seal so that water would be held there. The next picture is from the Roman era. <clears throat> what do you notice in this picture? What do you notice? Yeah, it's not fresh water, is it? By the way, um, this was built in the Roman era. It's still got water in it. What makes a cistern valuable? It holds water. That's what it's supposed to do. We're not talking about clean water here. We're not talking about fresh water. We're talking about stagnant water. Um... And the, the great irony is, this water comes from what? The, the weather, rainwater, which comes from who? This is a trickle down, okay? But, but when we get to this level and we try and kind of hold it, it, it isn't the cleanest anymore. It's now, it's now on this end, and Giardia and whatever else, and... Um, and now if it's broken, what happens? There's a hole below the water line. It, it, it's, it seeps out. And what God is saying is there's something so illogical that the heavens shudder. And what it is, is I'm the one who brings you life. And I bring it in abundance. And I renew it. And I renew it. And yes, there's difficult times. But I led you through difficult times. There's no better source of life than me. And when you try and think that you're going to get life or joy or blessing or happiness or fulfillment or goodness or, or all the things I'm promising you, you're going to get them downstream here where you're controlling it or, or, or someone else is promising it to you. You're trading the thing itself for something broken and empty and ultimately worthless. There's, there, it is so illogical that it offends me. Jesus comes along and, and tries to say the same thing. I, if, if you knew who was talking to you, spring of living water, like I, you come to me, I will give you living water. 
And then he said to other people, I'm the man I sent down from heaven. I'm the, I'm the provision straight from the hand of God. You, you eat this food, it's the right food. You feed on this, it's going to nourish you the right way. Don't try and get nourished some other way. And Jesus is saying the same things again. This is where life is. Don't take your eyes off of me. Don't take your eyes off of what God is doing. You camp here. Okay, yeah, that sounds great, Jesus. But what about when I wake up in the morning and everything in my life is wrong and it's not going to fix by the end of the day? Am I, spill, am, am, I, am I still supposed to wait on you? Because I, I can go do other stuff. I'm industrious. You know, it's America. I can go buy it. I can go throw money around and fix my problems. I can hire people to fix my problems. I can lie my way out of my problems. I got solutions over here that I can control. And, and God's like, you want to go strive instead of submit. Fine, but what you're going to get is a mirage. What you're going to get is stagnant water. What you're going to get is something that empties itself out on you and ultimately you're going to be left with nothing. Yet you camp here and you look to me and you wait and you submit and you humble yourself. You do whatever you got to do because there's not going to be a better answer than me or my answer for your current problem. Habakkuk, good luck. I'll, I'll give you enough time. Head start, go. Um, Habakkuk is a couple books before the New Testament. It's a small one, so you'll see it like on one page, and then it'll be gone. If you are struggling this morning, I've never given homework before, your homework is to go home and read Habakkuk. If you are struggling, go home and let the Word of God speak to your soul. Go home and read Habakkuk. This whole book is about the nature of faith in the midst of struggles and trials. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, we see this fascinating phrase in verse 4. He pivots against the proud and the upright, and he says this, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But... The righteous will live by his faith. And then it goes on and talks about the unrighteous some more. And then Paul in Galatians, uh, I'll just paraphrase, we don't have to turn there. In Galatians chapter 3, quotes Habakkuk. It says, You see, the righteous, the ones who have the favor of God, the ones who are right with God, are not the ones that just are following rules. If you want to know whether rules are the answer, just think about the last time you put together Ikea furniture. It doesn't always get you there. You understand what I'm saying? There's steps along the road that are supposed to guide and help you, but the main thing isn't the rules. The main thing is the rightness and the goodness and the wholeness and the unity of this, this thing. 
And Paul's talking about, in Galatians, a bunch of people that think they're going to they're gonna have the whole deal by following rules. And he's like, it's not about the rules. You can follow rules and get it wrong. But if you are walking by faith, if you are waiting on God, if you are looking at God and saying, you are my only salvation, I don't want anything else, you're never going to get it wrong. Jesus said it a different way. He says, man, you want to understand what faith is, look at a child. First thing a child does when they run into a problem, they don't try and fix it. I, I follow my youngest around. She's in this stage where she cries about everything. When sister looks at her wrong, she starts crying. And why is she crying? I mean, it's silly, but why? She immediately wants the default, which is dad needs to fix this. Dad, you come and fix it. Dad, you come and resolve my problem. Dad, you come to my rescue. Dad, you come to my aid. Dad, you are strong enough. Dad, you are big enough. And every single one of those cries, as much as they annoy me, reaffirm her belief in me as a source of giving life and helping her along the road. In a really childish, simple way, Jesus is saying, you want to understand faith, look at the faith of a child. They don't reject God or, or their dad. They don't walk away from it. They don't make light of it. They don't think that they've got it all figured out. They walk simply and humbly by faith. And they wait. And they seek. And they cry. And so Paul's like, man, it's not, it's not the rules. And frankly, when you do the rules, then you're going to start thinking that what brings you joy is the fact that you're getting a good grade by the rules. And then when that's not good enough, you're going to default to the greatest pleasure giver of all, making comparisons with other people that are aimed to make you come out favorably. So you, you, you're going to think you're doing good and you're going to, you're going to be empty because you don't have the relationship and the unity with God. And in that emptiness, you're going to need to fill it with some kind of pleasure and you're going to start looking around and you're going to see the, the gal with the bad marriage or the guy with the bad marriage or the person that can't get their life straightened out or the one with the addiction or the one who's not quite pure enough. And you're going to deride that person and you're going to judge that person and you're going to spiritualize how you can talk about that person to other people because they're bad and God doesn't like them. And all the while what you're really doing is making a comparison where you win so that you can feel good. And this is what's going on in Galatians and Paul's like, no, that's the sermon for the business where you can send the video link to new people about why there's a good value of following rules. I'd name names, but I'd get into trouble. Because there's a lot of that kind of Christianity out there. And Paul's like, he's just pulling his hair out. Evidently, he was bald, church tradition, so maybe he wasn't pulling his hair out. Um, but he's like, guys... You can spiritualize stuff and delude yourself to thinking that what you're really talking about is God. But what's really going on is, is you've got 
cisterns that you've painted with religious artwork. And you've created a religiosity that you're trying to get your satisfaction and your joy and your salvation out of that's not really coming from faith and from this relationship with God. And it's so subtle. Religious hypocrisy is so subtle. But what you're really doing is you're dressing it up, but it's really this thing over here again. And Paul's like, no. The righteous will walk by faith. Turn to Second Chronicles, because I promised a friend that Actually, let's detour. Let's do Psalms first. Psalm 36. The nature of sin. Psalm 36. Psalms in the middle of your Bible. 36 is right after number 35. Psalm 36. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. His flattery distracts him or her such that they're not really realizing they're sinning. His flattery uh, is so much, too much, to detect or hate his sin. When we commit adultery, because that's what God likens it to, rebellion against God, walking away against God, finding idols to worship instead of God, God all throughout the prophets likens it to adultery. Now, from my experience, most adultery is an enticement or an allurement that draws somebody away from their covenant to the point where it replaces the object of the covenant. From my experience talking to people, I don't think most cases of adultery are spitting in your spouse's face and then going and running off, although that that certainly is there. This sin, and I know I'm treading on, on, on really serious adult ground here. Okay, I get that. But, but we're talking about spiritual adultery. And we're saying that when we rebel against God, our eyes are flattered to the degree that we don't even detect or hate our own sin. We slowly wander. This is uh, the same verse in the New Living Translation, Psalm 36. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. In In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. Everything they say is crooked and deceitful, and they refuse to act wisely or to do good. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. Here's what I've realized about the action of sin. The action of sin is always preceded by 
the permission-giving nature of sin as it works in our minds. We always grant permission to sin before we act on sin. And why are we granting permission to act out sinfully or unfaithfully? Because we slowly buy into a logic that says real life is over there, not here. Something better is over there. It's something I need, something I deserve, something I can't get from God, something God didn't give me that he should have given me. But you know what? Going that way is right or justified or good or whatever. And as it whispers, I'm losing sight of God. The more I lose sight of God, the smaller God gets. The more I look at the possibility of controlling things myself, the bigger it gets. And pretty soon it's getting so big that I, I begin to walk into this over here. And I've now rebelled and forsaken God. And so sin is always preceded by a whisper that works on the logic in our minds to get us to do the unthinkable and the illogical and to split that atom when we have no fear of God. So I taught the 20-somethings last Sunday. There's a trick I learned by reading the Psalms and the Proverbs. I spent years, that's all I would read. I, I, would, I, would re, I think Billy Graham did it, but I, evidently I thought Billy Graham created it but I think it was a generational thing. But I would read a chapter of Proverbs, uh, a chapter of Psalms a day, and then five Proverbs. I would do that every single day for years. And so here's what I learned in that. You, if you want to find a verse on fearing God, if you open the Proverbs, I, depending on what Bible your Bible is or how, how big it is, right? How much space... You can turn to almost any page in the book of Proverbs and you're going to see fear of God either on the left or the right. You, you can, it would be very interesting to see if your Bible had it, but there's, there really is no page of Proverbs that you can turn to where fear of God is not going to be on one side or the other. The same is almost true for the book of Psalms. There's, there's not a page or two that you can't turn to where fear of God is going to be on the left or on the right. And the fear here is a sense of deep respect or awe because it's just big. It commands a sense of reverence because it's just, it's just big or it's powerful or it's important. If Obama walked in here right now, if, if something else walked in here right it's just a human, but there's something else going on that all of a sudden it's different. Than when someone else walked by you. And there's a sense of bigness or power or importance. And there's a fear of God and awe of God. And you can't turn to hardly any page in the Psalms where you don't find that. So here's the interesting thing. Psalms, worship. Proverbs, wisdom. If you're going to talk about worship or if you're going to talk about wisdom, you have to talk about the fear of God. God has to be big. He has to be big enough that your eyes stay there. He has to be big enough that your faithfulness and your fidelity are there, that the covenant you made with God is big enough, that your sense of belief that he can deliver on the promises that he made is there, your confidence. 
if you're going to talk about worship or wisdom, you have to have the fear of God. Turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 26. There's a couple ways we get at Scripture to where we understand it. The, the, the word hermeneutics, it's a fancy word about interpreting Scripture. And it's basically the Greek god Hermes was the messenger god. So it's hermeneutics is how you interpret a message. And then how you apply that message falls right out of a correct interpretation. And so one of the things when we're really trying to understand Scripture and what it's getting at as we look at multiple passages, because one of the ways we come to understand a deep truth is we come at it from different angles and we see where they all share that overlap space and there's harmony. Does that make sense? So when you read something in Psalms or you read something in Jeremiah and then you read it in, say, the book of Hebrews, and now we go to Second Chronicles and we see kind of an auto, uh, or a biographical look at a specific person, and they're all aiming at the same core truth. You begin to understand it's a truth in Scripture that's deep. And this is what it means. And then the very next question is, now how do I apply that? So here's the illustration of these principles. You got King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So he begins to reign when he's 16. Verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he sought God during the days of Zechariah the prophet, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success, the fountain of living water. He feared God. He had reverence for God. He sought God. Then let's go down. Verse 16. So he, the, the verses in between are about how he begins to rise in prominence. Verse 16, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You guys know the rules, right? This is the Old Testament. God dwells in the holy temple, and only consecrated priests set aside to him are supposed to be able to come into his presence because he's big, and he's holy, and he's dangerous, and he's different, and he's not common or to be trifled with or to be taken small and light. And so this is, this is the rules. And so what, what did King Uzziah do? Became slowly enamored with his own goodness or greatness. And as he became enamored with that, the size of God begins to diminish. And as the size of God begins to diminish, the, the, the glory of God and God being in the temple begins to diminish. And then it diminishes till one day it's so common that King Uzziah just grabs the incense and I'm going to go see God. So what happens is, Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, this is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated, set aside to burn the incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord your God. 
And Uzziah had a censer in his hand, and he was ready to burn the incense, and he became angry. What do you think that anger was? Yeah, don't tell me what to do. And as he was there, while he was raging at the priests in their presence, before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. The leprousness in his heart manifested on his skin, and it condemned Uzziah for what was really going on. The hypocrisy, the pride, the unfaithfulness in his heart broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. And indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had inflicted him. And King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. And someone took charge over him. I got a great plan for a cistern. It's going to serve me well. I will get all the happiness I need. I will get all the joy I need. I will get all the popularity, fame, or money I need. I will get all of the distraction and entertainment I need. I know how to do this. I know I can get this. I can make this happen. But it's a broken cistern. In the end... It'll leak out. In the end, it'll bring only death. In the end, it'll bring only shame. If I trade my true glory for this, all I get is shame. But over here is God. God who is steady, who has always been a rock, where all the imagery in Psalms and Proverbs and everywhere in Scripture is about a strong fortress and a tower and a rock and a refuge. And this is a God who demands he be at the center. Do you know one really interesting reason why God can't run around and serve you like a handmaiden? Because it would put you at the center. And if God worshipped you, what would God be doing? Committing idolatry and profaning his name. He would be violating inviolable laws of the universe. God cannot put you at the center. So he's here. Now, he's not here like a mean, old, grumpy old man. He's here pleading for your heart and your fidelity and your covenant faithfulness Jesus puts it this way. I stand at the door and I knock. Knocking. I want you to let me in so that I can be at the center, but I can't barge in and serve you as if you're at the center, but I'm pursuing you. I love you. I want to forgive you. I am desperate for you. But you got to choose me. I stand at the door and knock. James says this, and he quotes Jeremiah. If you draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. If we wait on the Lord, 
he will prove himself faithful. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. It's the, it's the great irony about the words faith and trust, and I've said this before, but when we put our faith in something or someone, it affords them the opportunity to prove themselves what? Faithful. If we put our trust in something or someone, it affords them the opportunity to prove themselves what? Trustworthy. Worthy of our trust. There's this dynamic relationship we have with God where we have to live by faith. We have to walk by faith. We have to have the faith of a child. And in doing so, we afford God the opportunity to manifest what is already true, that his character is good, and that he has the power to deliver on the promises that he's made to you. So when you come to him, it gives him the opportunity to bless and to manifest what is already true, his own goodness. But we have to draw near to God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, I'm going to try and land the plane here. And Chris is going to come up and lead us in a time of worship and and. He and I connected beforehand. We really wanted a responsive time of worship. Um, well, there's two thoughts, but I want to get them both out. So instead of just doing one, I'll do two fast. When we don't take something serious, we get rid of the hardest stuff first. When we don't take something serious, we get rid of the hardest stuff first. When we begin to cut corners, what we're cutting out is the hardest stuff. When we don't take God serious, when we don't take faith serious, when we don't take the the community of faith serious, when we don't take the covenant serious, we begin to cut the hardest stuff out first. We, We cut out the disciplines of faith, the discipline of worship, the discipline of community, the discipline of service, the discipline of scripture reading, the discipline of prayer, of fasting. And the funny thing about those things is they're a two-way street. It's like a smile. You can smile because you're happy or you can smile and it makes you happy. You get that paradox? The spiritual disciplines are the same way. You can be doing those disciplines because you're so enamored with and satisfied with and overwhelmed by a good God, and they flow out. Or you can do the disciplines, and they remind you, and they begin to take you back into the presence of a good and a big and a majestic God. It's a lot like the smile on the face. It can come because of or it can lead to. And spiritual disciplines are a two-way street that way too. But when we begin to push away and get enamored with other stuff, we're going to quickly begin to cut the corners, which is the hard stuff first. And when we get rid of the spiritual disciplines, boy, we become untethered. It's like when Wilson began to float away from the raft in the movie Castaway. Second thought. Um, The loss of pilgrimage. The loss of pilgrimage. 
the, Isra uh, the Israelites had a God in Jerusalem who dwelt in the temple and people of different tribes and different families and some of them with different languages would trek to Jerusalem together. They would travel on foot. They would camp as they traveled. They would bring animals with them for sacrifice. It was an arduous process and they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem as pilgrims and as they did that, there was only one reason why they were going. The presence of God, the bigness of God. And as they would go, they would sing the psalms. The ones we now read as if it's literature, those were songs in an illiterate culture. And as they traveled together, they would sing the psalms about God. And the whole idea is all of this craziness not who you hang out and play poker with, but just the random people of the covenant would be on this trek together about the bigness of God, being reminded about the bigness of God, singing about the bigness of God, and then coming into the presence of a holy God. Instruments were given by which to worship. When we worship as a covenant community, people who might never hang out with each other ever except for here. When we have instruments and we're going to worship and we're going to sing about a big God with the different tongues and the different families and the different tribes and clans and everything else going on, different generations, we're doing this because God is supposed to be big enough that he's in the center and that he's driving all of it and that when we come face to face in that sense, reverencing God, everything else slowly begins to change. We, we come with our problems, but we also come for God to encourage us that he has our problems. When was the last time we worshiped like that? When? So what got me off track this week on this particular sermon is we've got a worship night tonight. A night of worship and taking community as the covenant people of God. Which is a big deal because he is the fountain of living water and all else is vanity. So I'm going to close with some prayer. Chris is going to lead us in worship. And I want you to think about the discipline of maybe coming back tonight with this family of believers to worship, to take communion, and to be in fellowship. Father, may this church walk by faith. May we see you big. May we not be led astray. Father, let all sin be as chalk within our mouths. Let it not satisfy. Let us not be enamored with stuff that is not you. Let us encourage each other. Let us build each other up. Let us have grace for one another so that we can help each other along in this journey. We know that that's what you've planned. I just pray your spirit would fill this building right now as we seek to lift you up in Jesus' name.